Welcome to episode four of the Kangaroo Court College Hoops podcast. Alongside Sporting News College basketball editor Cami Mattioli, I am Troy Macker. You can now stay up to date with all of our Kangaroo Court podcasts on iTunes, as well as on SoundCloud, and of course at SportingNews.com. The way this podcast works is pretty simple. We're going to debate and probably yell at each other about three hot button issues in the worlds of college hoops. It's going to be fun. You got to trust us on this. And today we have three uh, interesting topics to discuss. And the first one we're going to get right into is regarding Shaquille O'Neal. And while he doesn't play college basketball anymore or basketball to begin with, um, he came out and said during an interview that he was paid pretty well by LSU during his time there. Uh, back in the early 90s. And so that got us to thinking about paying players in general and whether or not it's okay for players to come out and say that they got paid in the past, like Shaquille O'Neal or perhaps Charles Barkley, and whether or not a school or the NCAA can do anything about it now and what that necessarily means regarding how severe or how bad it is to pay players in the first place. So, with that, let's get started. Your thoughts? After four years, if something comes out that potentially happened, the NCAA cannot investigate it for most things. However, there are three exceptions to that. And what happened in Shaq's case, um, where he said, whether it was jokingly or whether it was serious, I think he said it so much at this point that I'm beginning to believe that it's actually serious. What he said was that he got money to play from either from a booster or from somebody, he got money to play at LSU. Well, that happens to fall under one of the three exceptions to the NCAA's rule on the statute of limitations, which means that there, technically speaking, is no statute of limitations on that since it's an exception to the rule. So that means for most people, um, and in most circumstances, including this one, that the NCAA has a year when they hear about it to then investigate, which and, and this is what I agree with. Some people are saying, well, can they really police something that happened almost 25 years ago? No, probably not, because either the boosters that were involved in that, if there were any, or any sort of impropriety is going to be really hard to track. However, there is the case where if they're investigating, who knows what the NCAA is also going to find. I'm not dumb enough to think that if it happens one time, it's never going to happen again. So if Shaq is right in saying that he did get money, there's probably another instance at LSU where someone else did as well. So, I, you know, maybe they can't nail down Shaq for, or, or whatever the situation was surrounding Shaq, but if you look hard enough, you're going to find something. Absolutely, and I think there are enough cases out in the public. I know Charles Barkley has said frequently that he got paid to play at Auburn, and especially with Shaq, and I know personally – of a story involving a player who is now in the NBA. It was from a couple years ago where three teams were legitimately in a room and had a bargaining war over his services. It happens. It's an ugly part of the game. And unfortunately, we see when it does get amended or when the NCAA does find out, we see instances where they drop sanctions or punishment against teams, and it affects the players there now. So like, let's say they punish LSU. For Shaq, they're going to take away practice days from the team in 2016, nearly you know, 20 years, 30 years after Shaq was there. That's the, the big problem with the way the, the NCAA polices it and also just the policing process in which you've, you come to a conclusion years after it actually happened and 
in college sports case, the players are all gone. And sometimes the coaches are. So what are you supposed to do? And not only that, not only are the coaches and the players usually gone, but then they're penalizing people who, in most circumstances, literally had nothing to do with it, other than you chose to go to the same school where something happened that was unrelated to you, which I think is ridiculous, but that's a podcast for another day. Yeah, and, and another one, uh, Jalen Rose, who played at Michigan and was part of the Fab Five, he's gone on record numerous times about uh, the improprieties that, that he took while he was there. And they talk about it so freely right now that it didn't really bother them to do it at the time, which means, you know, the rules are there, but they have no problem breaking them. So what's to stop people from continuing to do it? Because I'm pretty confident there are players playing college basketball right now that have been paid to play. I don't think it's one of those, well, cheating happens everywhere. I don't think it does. But I think a lot of programs are willing, donors are willing to shell out money. And if the punishment, we talked about this last week, if the punishment isn't severe enough, severe enough is it really going to curb people from doing it? I don't think so. Well, here's, it's, it's interesting that you brought up Charles Barkley, and it's also interesting that you brought up Jalen Rose, because here's where this situation is different. So Shaq has a son, Sharif, who I think is a class of 2017 kid, well, meaning he's a junior this year, and he's a pretty good player. And Shaq also said in the same circumstance in L.A. where he was talking to Lakers fans about getting paid to play, he also intimated that his son could get that same money. So he's, he's basically saying that there's that same pipeline at LSU because he says, oh, you know, I know some guys there. I can make it happen. You get two cars, whatever you, you, know, whatever you want. It's 2016. Well, the problem there is that he's saying this is still happening at LSU because I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. Regardless of how you know that person, if you're saying that this is still going on, not only are you being stupid because, I mean, you're putting your son's future in jeopardy ostensibly by saying, hey, you know, if you go to LSU and he's talking about, you know, two years, two years ago, like say, so say he goes to LSU or say he goes to any college. Okay. And his dad two years ago was talking about how he could get his son money to play. You have to think that the NCAA is looking at that comment and being like, all right, this, the clearinghouse is going to go ham on this guy because (laughs) I mean, he's basically coming out and saying, this is what happened. So I think that was his biggest mistake. And that's also one of the things in the same article of the NCAA bylaws that says that if there's any indication that this is something that's, that this, these rules, I can't even talk, that these rules that are broken are still ongoing, then that's another reason it could validate or invalidate the four-year statute. So I just, I mean, it's one thing if you're Charles Barkley and you want to come out and say, yeah, I got money from an agent, blah, blah, blah. You're not jeopardizing anyone's future there because, I mean, what are they going to do about it, like you said? But Shaq's out there putting his son Sharif's career on the line here. And I just think that that, there's no reason for that. For what? To be funny? It wasn't even funny. We've heard that joke so many times before. It was just old hat. It's just dumb. I don't get it. Yeah, that's the thing with Shaq is like, and the report said that he there was uh, some levels of sincerity to it, that he was being serious. But it's Shaq, where he is just, he's a class clown. He wants to be funny all the time. Um, but I think you're right with the notion that it could certainly affect Sharif's career in college, wherever he goes, and not just at LSU, but anywhere. I mean, you look at the you, what the NCAA do, did to Shaq Diallo and the investigations that they did to Nerlens Noel. Uh, you know, some of it has to do with grades, but grades, money, uh, 
Was yeah. it Kobe Simmons too, who was on like his fourth school, couldn't mm-hmm. get cleared by like three or four schools? Yeah. I it, mean, it doesn't take much to fall into the lap of the NCAA's investigative staff. Now. Yeah. So why, so why ever, would you jeopardize? Yeah. Him? Exactly. It's again, you know, I don't. I used to be really against paying players, but the more I think about it, and I'm I'm very much pro stipend now. Um, but it happens. I don't think it's a huge deal. Let's make it more transparent where if they are getting paid by the school in some regard, it will probably eliminate the amount of shady backroom, you know, big duffel bags with dollar signs on it and money sacks. But that, in some ways that was never about the actual school. That was about those those people, those handlers having access to those kids at whatever school so mm-hmm. that then when they went to the NBA yeah. and signed endorsement deals that those handlers would get a cut of it because they've been around. So I don't necessarily think that do, paying players eliminates handlers from their responsibility or whatever they feel like their their responsibility is to kids. But at the same time, I don't think it was always like that because especially when Shaq played in like 1990 – you know, the AAU circuit wasn't as, strong, wasn't as strong. There weren't these handlers. that The word handler really came into existence in, like, the early 2000s. And so I think it is a lot like the money blue or the movie Blue Chips, which is ironic because it was a tremendous early to mid-'90s sports film. Uh, I'm sure most of you have seen it with Nick Nolte and Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway where they're playing at, uh, I want to say it's Eastern University, the Dolphins. And Shaq plays this guy, Neon Boudreaux, from the bayou in Louisiana. And he just gets paid all sorts of money to go there. And it was by this booster named Happy, uh, which is just like the perfect booster name. And the, the guy who played him, he'd been like a character actor and had been in a bunch of movies playing. J.T. Kind of, Walsh was his name, by yeah, the way. I'm yeah. looking at his IMDb. Yeah, and he, he's played like a bunch of, of like kind of seedy businessmen and politicians in movies. He, play, he, he played it well, but... It was like it, it was very much more like the booster wanted players to come there so the the school could do better and therefore the boosters could do better because they think they're somehow part of the school even though they just donate money. Um, so I think that's back in the day it was more the boosters with the cars and whatnot. Now we're seeing guys who have connections in the shoe industry and handlers who you know have been with these kids you know sometimes acting as guardians on their behalf. Because they don't have, um, you know, parents in their life, so it is uh, more confusing and more difficult to kind of weed out. But I, it's it's never going to stop until something major happens, whether it's reform on the NCAA level or something so bad that you know some there's like a a trough of money that they uncover that had been running from school X Y Z to program A B C. So it. Shaq is a character. I, I tend to not take too much of what he says seriously, but it's dangerous what he's saying because it involves his kid. Who Shaq's kid never has to play basketball and has his future set for the rest of his life. But it seems like he wants to play basketball. Right. So this may take away his ability to play, play basketball. Sure, he may end up in the D League or overseas, but like everyone wants to play college basketball. It's fun. So here, here's my thing. I think a lot of people – treat Shaq as if he's like this goofy lovable guy but I think in a certain circumstance especially this one he needs to be held accountable for what he said and I I don't know if we'll see that but not not in as much as him saying oh well I took money 24 years ago whatever 
But like I said earlier, for him, him putting his son in that position and – I mean, he needs to be held accountable for that. If I was his son, I would be pretty mad about it because you know that whatever choice you make is already going to be scrutinized because you're the son of Shaq. But then to come out and say, hey, you know, I took money, so my son should take money too, even if you're joking, like what kind of microscope does that put you under? Yeah, the the thing with Shaq is he's never been an accountable person. He's never held himself accountable. Um, He's always kind of – he's used humor and jokes to kind of – break tension and just move the subject forward. And and depending on whether or not you believe it, there have been some interesting articles and books written about Shaq's personal life and the handlings with the people he has and his entourage. It's very dicey, and he seems like a very controlling person. And, and that, again, it, whether or not you want to believe it is your own prerogative, uh, but like some of the reason that he has this big desire to get in law enforcement is so he can have power. He's a guy who kind of seeks power you know from his days in the NBA dealing with Kobe Bryant and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, it's very dangerous. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I really don't know what to think about Shaq saying this just because the, the kind of role of paying players, it, it's always going to be there. But he's now, like you said, putting someone else's potential future on the line. Even though his, his son's future, like we said, is this guy never doesn't have to play basketball. He's the son of one of – the wealthiest professional basketball players of all time who continues to get paid for endorsements and being on television and potentially being in more movies. So grand scheme, and it's not police a police officer career. Yeah. That too. Uh, you know, is Sharif's career is not in doubt. His basketball career could be, you know, wherever he goes, regardless of where he goes, if it's LSU or if it's Southeast Louisiana, they're going to investigate him. And they have to. But it's it's Shaq, so he'll probably get swept under the rug or whatnot. So, I, you know, the I don't think paying players is that big of a deal. I think they need to be paid. I just think it needs to be done transparently. Uh, I think Shaq's comments were reckless. But that's, if there's anything we've learned from Shaq, it's that he likes reckless comments and saying whatever's on his mind because it gets a rise out of people. All right, so what's your final ruling on Shaq then? I think it's really bad what he said. I think – you know, I don't think he realizes how bad it was because he's just trying to get a rise. Do you think he's joking? No. No, I don't. I think he got paid, and I think he thinks he's Teflon and can get away with it and have his son not have to deal with any of the consequences because he's Shaq's son. I think I, I agree with you on the most part. I think that he thinks it's funny, um, and I think that in the next – you know, a couple years we'll realize that it's probably not as funny as Jack thinks it is. And I think it's despicable that he's making that joke potentially at the expense of his son's basketball career. Yep. So, all right. Well, we agreed on another one. <laughs> we're, we're one for one today. The, the whole point of the show is not to agree on things. And I think, I think this next point is going to be one that we kind of diverge ways here. So, There's been a lot of talk about Duke recently, and not necessarily in a good light. Duke's lost four of their last five games, including last night at Miami. Um, And we filmed this on a Tuesday, so last night would be Monday night. And it's interesting because I had a friend, actually, I'm not going to name him, but I had a friend actually tell me that there's a possibility that Duke misses the NCAA tournament this year. And if they do, Mike Krzyzewski should tell his players that they're not allowed to play in the NIT. Do you think that that's a good idea, Troy? 
first of all, do you think that that's a possibility? Let's start there. I think it's absolutely a possibility considering who they have coming up. Um, they have a three-game stretch. I think they have one more game at Georgia Tech. And then they play uh, Louisville. Georgia Tech, NC State, Louisville at home, Virginia at home, and then UNC on the road on the 17th. And then after that, Louisville again. So they have the four yep. games against ranked teams. And they've dropped four or five with only one of those coming against a ranked team. Now, granted, I think this year uh, the top 60 to 70 teams in the country are so close that Team 70 can beat Team 2 on any given night. So the rankings don't mean nearly as much this year because they change so often. I absolutely think they could miss the tournament. But because the, uh, the ACC is really good this year, I mean, they have one bad team in that conference. That's Boston College. Wake Forest, who's second to last in the conference, is a good team. I mean, they, they gave, had a good Maui Invitational tournament. Yeah, they they beat uh, Wake Forest. And I think they beat UCLA, and they gave North Carolina everything they had. They've given Louisville everything they've had. It's a tough out, and they have it's a it's a quality RPI as well. So every win for Duke is going. There's not going to be one where they're like, eh, well, we beat Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech has a quality strength of schedule this year, so their wins are going to matter more. But the problem is, is that they haven't been winning games, and they they have four games coming up against ranked teams. My biggest issue with Duke is like I don't think they're a bad team. I just think they're ill-equipped this year. They don't have any depth in the front court. They're reliant on young players who are good, but not exactly NBA ready at this point. I mean, I think Brandon Ingram is going to go pro, but I, I don't know how good he's going to be. Justice Winslow was significantly more ready for the NBA at this time last year than Brandon Ingram. Um, and at this time last year, Jaleel Okafor was already locked into the do, number two pick. To that point, I do think Brandon Ingram will be a higher pick than Justice Winslow was or somewhere around the same area. Because if you're looking at it as a projection, like NBA scouts are, I think Brandon Ingram projects to be a, probably a better player than Justice Winslow. However, he's a lot, he's a few more years out than Justice was at this point. So yeah. it's sort of like a toss-up. If you're going to a team where you've got enough suitable bodies right now that, that's, that having someone come in and start right away isn't an immediate concern, then I think your pick would probably be Brandon Ingram. But if you're looking at a team who needs a guy to come in like the Heat did, and have someone fit in that role and be that player right away, then you're going Justice Winslow. So I think, I mean, I don't think Brandon Ingram is a bad player. I think he's he's no. a good player. He's got a great skill set. He's got skills that a lot of big men don't have, and he's very good at some of the things that big men aren't good at, but he's just not there yet. Yeah. And I don't think that that's a knock on him. I mean, obviously he's shown great improvement from the first couple games of the season where we were all like, what is going on, to now where he's scoring, averaging 17 points a game. I just, you know, I, I think that they still have work to do. And I think it's hard for them to do that work without Emil Jefferson. Yeah. And the big part that people – the big qualm that people always have when you say, like, this team isn't the same without Emil Jefferson is that Emil Jefferson is basically a role player. Yeah. So – what I think the perception of Duke is that they don't need a role player to succeed. They should have that talent. Um, they should be bringing in that talent every year. But the whole point of a role player is to fill in in situations that other players, maybe if they're missing shots, if they can't, you need a hype man, whatever it is, whatever that role is, if you take that away, it's not the same team. Yeah. It's not like you just take out a, a, a point guard and you put in another point guard. Like There are some intangibles there that a role player does that maybe someone who's in a traditional position doesn't. Yeah, I mean, because Marshall Plumley, 
Is that it? Miles Marshall. No, it's Marshall. Yeah. 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 Um he has the experience. He's a senior, he is an athletic guy, but he is not someone who will command attention at the offensive end. He's a garbage guy, so to speak. Emil Jefferson has an offensive game, and while he wasn't their leading scorer, Emil Jefferson, like you said, is a guy who could come in and any night be your leading scorer, but also not take away from anyone else. You know, when you look and you see that Marshall Plumley is your leading scorer, that means that the rest of the team was struggling. Right. Um, because a lot of missed shots and rebounds. Emil, I wouldn't say Emil Jefferson's a role player. He's a step above that. In the but se- I don't know what you would call it. I mean, like a like glue a, guy? He, He's very much a glue guy. And I, mean, I, I feel like a glue guy is somebody that you need that's more chemistry-based. Like, you need that guy to keep the chemistry together. Whereas, like, a role player is someone whose actual performance on the court is something that holds your team together. Well, I, I think he does, in a sense, on the offensive end because – if you get the ball into the high post where Plumley is, the defense isn't going to collapse because anyone will give Marshall Plumley a, a 10-foot jumper. Emil Jefferson could put the ball on the floor, could make plays, had a jump shot. He was more of a threat. So I think that he, you know, when he gets the ball, more people are sagging on to him, leaving people open. Last night against Miami, Duke looked woefully unsure of what they wanted to do on the offensive end. It was very much a just drive and kick three-point, drive, turnover. Uh, they were, and they weren't getting any offensive rebounds whatsoever. I think Emil Jefferson, who a lot of people forget was a McDonald's All-American, yep. um, is, you know, it just hasn't met maybe what people thought his ceiling should be because, I mean, look at the people who played around him. I, I think, you know, he had the opportunity to go somewhere where he would have been the star. Oh, absolutely. But he knew that when he went to Duke, his role would be more important in some senses because he's helping make everybody around him better. It's just something that players, certain players choose. That's, that's I mean, I, I've known Emil for a couple years because he grew up in the Philadelphia area. I covered him a couple times in high school. And the thing about him is that he's the guy that you see on the court, the way that he distributes and makes other players better, that's who he is as a person, too. So, you know, he's perfect for this role at Duke. Yeah, he could have gone somewhere else and been a star, but he didn't. And so instead, he embraced the role that basically they gave to him, and I think he's excelled in that role. Oh, absolutely. I think this year he was on his way to being a, a real breakout player this year. That's, you know, kind of what we've seen with Ben Bentel at, at Providence, where he would be the interior dominator that Duke needs so they can get more open looks from three where they've been shooting and making at a high percentage. And it opens up the floor for Grayson Allen to be a slasher. And that then opens up the floor for Luke Kennard to hit threes and Matt Jones to hit threes. So I think having another guy you have to worry about on offense makes them more dynamic. The problem with Duke for the last two or three years is they just they just don't have a lot of players. They're not recruiting bulk. They're recruiting the cream of the crop right. at a very small clip. Um, so you're getting two or three of the best players, but you're not getting four or five really good players. And right now they need numbers. I mean, Sean Obi is their, right now their second or third big man, and he transferred from Rice. And he's a he's an okay player, but he's not a Duke player. He, he's not someone you'd typifies a Duke big man, and so they have no depth. I mean, they didn't even have any depth last year. and But the fact is they had three first-round picks on that team. Right. Grayson Allen, who was a breakout player, and then Matt Jones, who was a perfect role player. And, you know, now they they just don't have a lot of numbers. So The, the problem is that they're competing, and I want to go back to Marshall Plumley in a second, so, but the problem is that they're competing with teams that don't have two role players in – 
high-profile spots in the front court. So they're they're coming they're coming at teams that have you know one through five are the cream of the crop, like you said. They're not role players. They're not people that are just hopping in to fill a, a, a spot because somebody's injured, and that's come back to bite them every time. So as much as you value your role players, you're, you're, when you're going against teams who's, who have guys in their dominant positions, it's just going to be hard every single time. Yeah. But to go back to the point about Marshall Plumley, I think part of his problem, and I'm, I'm looking at his stats now, he's had a couple double-digit games, including 21 points for, at Virginia, uh, against Virginia Tech. He had 18 at Wake Forest, 19 against Syracuse. He's had some games where he's been the leading scorer, if not the leading scorer, then one of the top two leading scorers. The problem is that there's nobody else to help him out. And so, I mean, the guy's got boundless energy, but yeah. it gets to a point where, like, you're playing 40 minutes, and if you're playing 36 to 40 minutes and you're doing all those things and you're scoring points and you're pulling down rebounds, like, you get tired. So when somebody comes up and, like, steps in your face and dunks on you, like, at a certain point it's just like, I can't do anything else. I need the rest of my team to help me out. So I think – Duke's been a co- in a couple of those situations, too. Yeah, I mean, they have seven guys who've played 25 minutes or more, and one of those is Emil Jefferson, so six guys. Uh, and then you, the next guy who's played minutes is Chase Jeter, the freshman who's played seven minutes. So they really haven't spread the depth around at all. So if foul trouble happens or if someone's – there's no room for error if someone's having an off night. Uh, and it, like you said, it's come back to bite them. And again, for me – we talk about the parity this year and the lack of elite teams and people say it's bad for basketball and it's a bunch of crap because teams, again, 1 through 70 are all like, you know, 7, 5, 8. We got maybe some 9s. There are no 9, 5s and no 10s, but the quality of play is at a higher level because everyone's kind of good, but no one's great. So Duke is down, but a lot of teams they're facing are up. Plus, you just have the Duke factor in which every time Duke steps on a court, they're getting the best shot from the opposition. So a better Virginia Tech team playing as hard as they can against a struggling Duke team makes it a more difficult game. Same with Clemson, same with Wake Forest, same with Syracuse, same with North Carolina State. So I think the state of of college basketball uh, is good. And while Duke isn't an elite team, I, I just don't think Duke's bad. I just think... They don't have proper personnel, and they're young. And this year, people call it the year of the senior. There's just more experienced dudes who, while not great, have played logged enough time. Like Tony Jakiri from Miami. You know, he averages 8 and 10. He's a senior, big, hulking dude who was just dominating Duke last night because he's been around the block enough times. He's talented, and he was beating freshmen and sophomores for the ball. You've got to figure, if they play each other two times a year – then Tony Jakiri's played Duke almost seven times at this point. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's seven uh, – anywhere between seven and, like, three more times than anybody on Duke's team. Yeah. I mean, some of the guys have played – you know, if you look at Derek Thornton and Chase Jeter and Luke Kennard and Brandon Ingram, they've each played, what, like 20 games in right. college? Yeah. Where a lot of these teams now are, are – again, while the talent is down because the cream of the crop has been picked away – by the uh, NBA draft, there's a bunch of experienced dudes who've stepped into spots and raised their game, and I think it benefits college basketball. The thing I think is bad about this is that Duke being good is good for hoops. When Duke is losing, sure, people are like, hey, you see that Duke lost four in a row? Yeah, 
No one's going to watch Duke's ne next game. If Duke were winning, everyone would watch it if it's against Boston College or Wake Forest. So the profile of those games goes down. So it's a lot easier to hate Duke and do it in an active role when they're good. I still think they're good, but their record certainly doesn't show it. So let's go back to the first part of that question. Do you think they missed the NCAA tournament? No. No. I, their non-conference record's not great. I think they beat uh, Georgetown, VCU. They never play a true road game out of conference. Yeah, I don't like that. I'm That's for another podcast. I'm so against all these neutral side games. Like, sure, let's play in some tournaments. I get that. But, like, you know, if you're Kansas, don't play two games in Kansas City, man. Like, play a road, road game at Wichita State. Do it. Yeah, yeah. so they beat Indiana, Georgetown, uh, VCU, lost to Kentucky. But they beat Indiana when Indiana wasn't very good. Yeah, and they lost to Utah. So their non-conference schedule is not great. Um, I think that this is the one year, honestly, I don't think they missed the tournament. I think they're going to be a double-digit seed. Um so, I don't know, like, like a, between a 10 and a 12 feels right right now. But I think in order to, to like, solidify their role among the double-digit seeds, they've got to win at least nine games. Yeah, and that means beating at least – winning at least two of the next games against Lu number 16 Louisville, 11 UVA, 2 North Carolina, 16 Louisville, Florida State, which is a good team, yep. Pitt, which was ranked, Wake Forest, like the, the – it was very ill-advised for Duke to, to get off 4-4 four and four because the back end of their schedule is very difficult. Um, the thing is, you know, you say they, they may end up 10-12. to 12. There are so many mediocre teams that they're got – the committee has to find 37 teams to make the tournament, and, and it's, it's going to be picking hairs so much this year because the difference between teams is just minute. But um, I, th I think they make the tournament. I'm pretty confident. Uh, they, would, they would have to continue to lose games and just fall apart. Um, and as to the NIT thing, we've seen teams in the past decide not to play. I think it's, you know, if they, it, with the NIT, if the NIT asks you to play, you should play. Well, now, aren't they doing that thing about, jeez, um, I don't even remember what specifically it was, but it was tied into the first four. So if you were one of the final four seeds, or one of the, I think it was, if you were one of the top four seeds, four number one seeds in the NIT, you got an automatic invite to the first four next year. I feel like I've read that somewhere. I no, just, no, no, no. Because what? because that would mean if you were one of the first four teams out of the NCAA tournament, you got automatically in the NCAA oh, tournament. Oh, I had year. it backwards. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, if, if you were one of the first four teams out of the NCAA tournament, you get an automatic number one seed in the NIT. So basically if you played in, D in Dayton, you get an automatic – no, oh, no, 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 no. If you, it's a if cutoff you, after. Yeah, so. if you were one of the teams on the bubble that didn't make it in, you become an automatic number one seed. So, like, if Duke was the last team left out, they would be locked into the number one seed. And I think, oh, yeah, because that happened to Temple last year. I yeah. I don't, I don't know why I messed that up so badly. That's just embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think, like, you shouldn't be allowed to say, no, I don't want to play. Um, why not? That's your prerogative. If you don't want to play, don't play. Like, so, hey, if, if the team's struggling and lost five in a row, you should be like, you know what? Nope, not going to play this one. Uh, we might lose six in a row, and I don't want that to happen. I think, I, granted, the the postseason tournaments that aren't the NCAA, it's kind of the wild, wild west. But, like, the NIT at least has been established for a long enough time, and it used to be the national championship back in the day in the 40s and 30s that, like, we can at least give it some sort of relevancy uh, I like when it has good teams playing in it because on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays when there's no NCAA tournament, it's, it's fun. 
for good basketball. Um, now we've seen in the past that teams have decided not to play, uh, and Tech it would give probably should have decided not to play in 2013. And I will tell you this: if Duke does not make the tournament and turns down a spot in the NIT, which teams have done, oh, the 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 fervor and lynch mob against Coach. Uh, Krzyzewski will be at an all-time high. But again, I think that's good for basketball. I think having people upset or insulting the Blue Bloods is good because that means people care about it. And while it's lazy uh, shtick to continue to call John Calipari a cheater and, and Coach K I'm a rat, so and, uh, you know, it, it keeps the, the debate alive how boring and inept it is. I, I like when more people are talking about hoops. So that being said, I... Duke will make the tournament. I'm pretty confident. What about you? I agree. Like I said, I think they'll be somewhere in the 10 to 12 seed range, depending on how the next – I think the next four games are super critical in figuring out how their season's going to shake out. Because if they go on some tailspin into the nether the nether world of college hoops, I just I – don't, I don't know. I just can't see the reaction to that being good by the selection committee, by the media – by the fans. I, I don't know. I just think that there's a certain expectation when you look at Duke basketball. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of brings up my next point. And this is just – we're throwing an audible here, calling an audible, whatever, whatever you want to call it. So if you are Duke, right, and you're coming off a season where you won the NCAA tournament, would you take a down year if it meant you could win another tournament next year? Absolutely. I mean, we've seen Florida go to the NIT the year after Noah and Horford and all those guys left. The year after North Carolina won their their most recent NCAA tournament, I believe they made the NIT. So it happens. I mean, Kentucky won the championship in 12, went to the NIT in 13, was back in the Final Four in 14. So I I think a lot of people get this notion that Blue Bloods can never have a down year. Mm -hmm. and. I just don't understand where that comes from because everybody's going to have a down year. Some years you're not going to be able to get – like some years your crosstown rival is going to win the NCAA tournament, and so every class that's coming in is going to want to go there. It's just like recruiting is so unpredictable, and the season is so unpredictable on top of it. I just don't understand why people get upset when you have a great year and then you have a down year. It's like you're comparing the highs and the lows way too much. Would you rather just be even keel and never win anything and never lose, just kind of like show up and maybe you have, you know, a 13 and 15 season or a 15 and 13 season? It's just like you got to take the good with the bad sometimes, even if you're a blue blue, I can never say that. (laughs) Blue blood. Blue blood program. Yeah. I I think we see it in football a lot where – especially in the SEC where fans have zero tolerance for poor seasons. I mean, they wanted to fire less miles at LSU because they lost three or four games this year as opposed to winning uh, 10 or 11 games. And you get – I say this all the time, and this applies to athletic directors, even coaches, but mostly athletic directors and fans. People want to be great so bad that they forget how hard it is to be good. Mm Mm-hmm. And especially like, did you borrow that from somebody? No, I, I swear to you, I'm that pretty. Does not sound like a Troy. I'm pretty confident I made this up by myself. Somebody needs to fact check this show. I'm pr- I'm pretty confident. Now I'm not entirely confident, but I'm through 85 percent that that's that's a Troy original. I've been using it for a while because I, I think it is very key. Like if you look at the Bengals, that what their their inability to win a postseason game in the NFL, people want Marvin Lewis out. He's gotten them to the playoffs like eight times. Sure, they are 0-8 in the playoffs, and you have to 
sooner or later get over the hump. But would you rather go to the playoffs eight times or make it once and go to the Super Bowl and lose? Or do you, well, again, think, it's like I a consistency. A of, I think a lot of people would rather take the Super Bowl than the consistency. But here's the alternative. So you have you go eight seasons in a row and you make it to the playoffs and you never win. And then maybe that guy you hire comes in and you don't even make it to the playoffs. Well, life was pretty good when you were at mm-hmm. least making it to the playoffs. It's like you got to play devil's advocate here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to stay with the football stuff, but if you look at Nebraska this year, uh, they fired Bo Pelini while he was a hothead and aggressive. Well, I missed him. Uh, and Bo Pelini's cat. And fake Bo Pelini. Fo Pelini, uh, one of the better follows on Twitter. They had gone 10-2 and two for like seven years in a row and were unable to win the big game and made it to Rose Bowls. I think they probably even won a Rose Bowl, but never made it to a championship game, never made it to the Big Ten or BCS championship and, and have not been in, in the playoff. So they fired him and brought in Mike Riley from Oregon State, who's a good coach, but they, you know, they won eight games this year. And while they beat Michigan State, it was like, so – you realize the trade-off you got, right? Right. You had a jerk who won 10 games, and now you have the nicest guy in college football, and he's going to win you seven. Are you okay with that? And I think because the tournament is such a crapshoot that, like, as long as your team is consistently making the tournament and getting past the first weekend, um, I think fans will be okay. I know from experience as a Georgetown fan that a lot of the community is growing very uh, tired of John Thompson the third because of his inability to make it past the first weekend. Um, I think that that same criticism is levied on Fran Dunphy at Temple too. Yep. I mean, I've heard that, I've heard that so many times in the last couple years. But the fact is, he took a team. When we're talking about Fran Dunphy here, he took a team and that had a losing record. Okay, and literally the next season with pretty much the same personnel, I think they lost one guy, flipped it to a winning season. The exact same. I think it was like. They were like 10 and 22, and he flipped it to 22 and 10 or whatever it was and made the tournament the next year. It's just like fans in some cases just don't have patience. And a lot of the times it's just dependent on waiting one year. So, like, if Duke has a bad year this year, well, the 2016 recruiting class is really good. So, I mean, there is – there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. Yeah, and I think – Again, I think patience is the key Although word. Although if they lose four games, it's probably a train and not actually good. Yeah, but the thing is, is a team like Duke will never hurt, will never get hurt in recruiting because of a bad season. Mm-hmm. It may take a slight step back, but Duke sells itself. Coach K sells itself. If this is a program like LSU that is looking, that is using Ben Simmons to get the next crop of recruits, sure. This the type of season they're having may hurt, but Duke is not exactly Teflon. But as long as Coach K is there, they will always be able to recruit at right near the highest level. Um, the problem is, is again, is he's been recruiting at such a high level that you either get one or two guys, or you get four or five guys who are the best. And when you don't get four or five guys, you're missing out on a bunch, so you don't have guys slotted in. Like, well, we didn't get the five star, but we have a couple three stars or four stars. It's really five stars or bust, and we saw last year how, how that worked out. And this year it was supposed to work out with Derek Thornton and Chase Jeter and Luke Kennard coming on a lot, a lot slower. We talked about this, I don't know, two weeks ago, kind of the Skull Labissier versus Ben Simmons. Skull struggling at Kentucky. He's, he's getting better, but people expect because ESPN shows high school games and the recruiting circuit is so popular that all freshmen are supposed to step in and be 
you know, lottery picks. And that's just not the case. People develop differently. They adapt to the game differently. And I think we're seeing that with Duke is that their freshmen are being asked to do a lot more than they're capable of doing at this moment. That doesn't mean they're bad team. That means they're unable and ill-equipped at the present time to deal with what they're being asked to deal with. And, but I think, maybe I think they'll make the tournament because they're Duke. And if they're on the bubble, they'll put them in. And I think that's good. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they'll be on the bubble. Uh, I just... And I think part of that is what you said. I think there is value in having Duke in the tournament, just yeah. like there's value in having Kentucky in the tournament, just like there's value in having, I don't know, this year Maryland in the tournament. Like there's certain programs that have the name recognition that like if you leave out these programs, even if you put them like a 16 seed, like you would still include them. Well, yeah. I mean, but they can't be a 16 I'm, saying, I'm saying like the barrier for them to be left out is a lot different than it is for like a mid-major team. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I don't think anybody would argue that. I don't know if that's actually on the books, but I don't think anybody would argue that there's, there's I guess, an idea of favoritism for having high-profile teams at least be in the tournament no matter where they're seated. Yeah. I mean, you look at like a team like UCLA the last year Ben Howland was in, they were like a 10 and 8 or nine. I think they played an 8-9 game against Minnesota. And, you know, UCLA certainly a blue blood program, although they have not been relevant in the last six years. And, and well, really... they are this year, I would say. Well, I said they, they are this yes. year. Yeah, no, they, they absolutely are uh, up and down. But, um, but yeah, I think it does help, especially, you know, if UCLA in the last 10 years has been probably a top 10 program. Um, Duke, Kentucky have been top five. And, you know, we saw – I don't – but, like, when Kentucky didn't make it, did it hurt the tournament that much? I honestly – it's been such a blur remember. that, yeah, I can't remember. So, it, hey, it made that first-round matchup against Robert Morris a lot better. Um, so, you know, I, I think – but going back to it, I don't think Duke will miss the tournament. Uh, I think they'll win enough games. They'll stop the bleeding. Remember, they lost back-to-back -back games last year against non-conference opponents – or non-ranked opponents in the ACC and got blown out and then went on to win the tournament. I'm not saying Duke's going to win the tournament. I don't think they're – equipped to win the tournament, but I think they're equipped to make the tournament, and I think that's what's going to happen over the, the course of the next month. I'm inclined to agree with you on that. I think Duke makes the tournament, um, but I think that's contingent on their ability to win at least eight or nine games in conference play. Thanks for tuning in this week to Sporting News' Kangaroo Court College Hoops podcast. We're going to have a little hiatus next week because Troy is the lucky one that's going to go cover the Super Bowl with uh, a few of our NFL people. So we'll join you again in two weeks, and we look forward to having you listen to us next time.